brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. One of them says, thou shalt not allow a sorceress to live. Many are called, but few are chosen. So they thought that in order to make it to heaven, you had to be chosen. And if you weren't chosen, you were going to hell no matter how good you were. So you might as well join up with the devil and have a good time while you were uh, in, in physical form. Stranger Connections is the embodiment of Lisa David Olson's perspective of, we're all just friends who just simply haven't met yet. It's an exploration of the weirdly wonderful side of life and a look at the single commonality we have with each other, our differences. Slip off your shoes, pour a cup of your favorite, and let's meet this week's Barrel of Quirks. Welcome to Stranger Connections, where I celebrate wonderfully weird people and their quirky stories. Please click subscribe if you haven't yet, and drop a lovely review while you're there so the show can be seen. I'm your curious beast and host, Lisa David Olson, and in this episode... During this time of Hallow's Eve, I get to chat with the very fabulous author, ghostwriter, and publisher, Stephen Holly Martin. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Lisa. I'm looking forward to our chat. Yes. you. Um, I don't share my video, but I'm going to share with the audience that I'm in Minnesota, but you look very Minnesota. You've got your lumberjack flannel on. And you are snuggled well, you in know, already. Yeah, I'm in Richmond, Virginia, and until yesterday, it was summer. But then we got a cold <laughs> front that came in from Minnesota or someplace like that, and now it's fall. So I had to change clothes. Now I have to put on my uh, flannel shirt just to keep from freezing to death. <laughs> I know. It's like, do I put on the heat? Oh, and I had to reach out to my science my science major brother and ask, why are the leaves falling and not giving me the beautiful show? And he talked about how the heat of the summer is affecting it. And he went all sciencey. I mean, I'm just like, well, 
I'm going to go on Yelp and complain because I like to take photos of the leaves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're getting the same thing here, a lot of dead leaves. Well, I wanted to talk with you because it's just the right time of year. You have a brand new book out. You are no newbie to writing and publishing books, but you do have a new one of your own out. Why don't you go ahead and throw us the title because I know the word witch is in there. Yeah, well, it's uh, called The Witch of Amesbury, uh, Matriarch of an Advertising Dynasty. And uh, The Witch of Amesbury, Susanna North Martin, was my seven times great grandmother. I'm not going to say great, 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 seven times. <laughs> I think grandmother. You just did. <laughs> right. But uh, anyway, I, I grew up uh, hearing all about her from my mother in particular, and, and it was actually my father, who was the uh, descendant of Susanna. But uh, I think my mother was kind of an early feminist. I grew up in the 50s, and she. Uh, she was a working mom, and, and uh, she was really bent out of shape that uh, somebody could be, be tried and convicted and hanged for, for witchcraft, uh, which is what poor old Susanna, what happened to her along with about 19 other people. So my book is, uh, you know, I, as I said, I grew up hearing all about this, and um, as a result, I decided when I got a little bit older that I would... Um, look into the circumstances surrounding her demise and see for myself whether she was actually practicing witchcraft or not, or if any of the other people who were involved were. And that's what this book is about. It's a kind of a real life murder mystery or very, very cold case murder mystery uh, of uh, what actually did happen back in, in 1692 Salem, Massachusetts and the surrounding area. And um, it's what my conclusions do not go along with what the conventional wisdom is, which of course is that these girls who accused everybody were, uh, were faking it and uh, just uh, having a ball, you know, getting people in trouble and hanged. I don't think that's what happened because over the years I have learned that there's much more to reality than what uh, meets the eye. I grew up in a household where you know, nobody thought anything existed if, if you couldn't see it under a microscope. And I've since changed my mind about that. So I think there was a lot more going on in Salem than people realize. So that's kind of what and the book's about. And it's not just mean girls and bullying. They, they must have had some sort of process. What did you learn about Susanna that was, I mean, she obviously already had kids. What do you think she was physically doing that made her be accused? She had eight kids, seven of whom actually made it to adulthood, which was pretty good in the 17th century. And uh, they were all grown by the time she was, uh, got involved in this witch hunt. She uh, was a widow. She was in her 70s, which is, was pretty old that, you know, to reach that. Uh, to reach that, that, yeah. <laughs> but uh, she, people had thought she was a witch for a long time. She had actually been tried for witchcraft uh, probably about 30 years earlier and was acquitted. But uh, when all this uh, witch hysteria, which it really was, people mm -hmm. were kind of going nuts, accusing people of wit being witches, when it took place, uh, she was a natural target. And I think the main thing it boils down to that she was a very strong woman who uh, didn't fit the mold of uh, 
what women were supposed to be in that Puritan society. They were supposed to be helpmates to their husbands and, you know, kind of in the background. And she was a very outspoken, uh, didn't suffer fools well. And uh, she, she was, <laughs> when she was a widow, was able to uh, run the farm herself, chop the wood and plow the field and all that in her 70s. And people didn't think you could do that if you were a woman. And, uh, unless you were using witchcraft to help you out. So that's kind of, there was a lot more to it than that, but uh, I would say that was the central issue as far as she was concerned, that she was, you know, she didn't put up with a lot of foolishness from people. So I think the basic way we think of it is she is in her um, mercantile and she is helping create some, something to uh, make a potion for your, lover to kill your husband and you're saying it wasn't anything like they were seeing in all the movies you're saying she just she was her authentic badass self as they say today <laughs> she was and you know one one of the uh witnesses in the trial uh said that uh, she had been visited by susanna who lived quite some ways away from her susanna didn't actually live in salem she lived in amesbury that's why she's known as the witch of amesbury and she, uh, one spring day, went to visit a friend who was about eight miles away, which is a long way back in those days. He had to walk or ride a horse or whatever, but uh, she walked. And it was a spring day in Massachusetts, and it was muddy, and it was been raining. And when she got to the friend's house, and this is testimony from the trial. All the trial records are available. You could probably find them online and read them which is what I did to get a lot of this information. Anyway, when she got to the house, uh, she did not have any mud on her skirts or mud on her shoes. And so the natural conclusion that her friend came to is that she must have flown there. And, <laughs> and I think it's much more likely that she took her shoes off and held her skirts up and, you know, just walked along. And when she got there, she washed off her feet, put her shoes back on, came in the house. But, no, they thought she must have flown there. So that was some of the uh, uh, witness uh, testimony that got her convicted of the witchcraft. And how, what was her demise? What did they do? They hanged her. And by the way, the past tense of the verb to hang when it's a person is hanged. Pictures are hung, my mother told me, and people are hanged. So they hanged her along. She was in the group, first five uh, people who were executed. She was one of them. Uh, and uh, later there were more executed. There are actually 150 or so people accused of witchcraft. Many of them spent, you know, six or eight months in jail until they finally figured out they were making a big mistake hanging all these people. Wow. And what do you think it was like when they said, well, maybe, maybe we don't believe everything everybody's saying as far as accusing? Well, the people who were accusing really had some pretty grotesque symptoms and then it seemed like something was on there where they were being attacked by something that was ethereal you know it was the, the big part of the witness uh, testimony was that the specters which would be the ghost or the spirit of these people were attacking them and uh, in England which of course at that time Massachusetts was part of England uh, a colony of England uh, spectral evidence was not allowed. But in Massachusetts, uh, the 
Puritans had been granted a charter by King Charles I to have their own colony that, that was a theocracy. It was, it was a Puritan theocracy. And so the Bible was the law. And uh, in Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy, it might be Exodus, uh, there after the Ten Commandments, yes, in Exodus, after the Ten Commandments, there are a bunch of smaller laws. I think there's something like 640 of them that were given to the uh, Moses and his group. And one of them says, thou shalt not allow a sorceress to live. So that was the law on which they based this. But the spectral evidence should not have been allowed. And, you know, and, and let me tell you about Susanna in her testimony. She pointed to the fact that in uh, the book of Saul, Saul goes to the witch of en Endor because he wants to, to talk to uh, Samuel, who had been his mentor, who had been a prophet, who was King Saul's mentor. And he wanted, Saul was dead. And so he wanted, but he wanted to talk to him. So Saul went to the witch of Endor and the witch of Endor conjured up Saul's spirit and indeed uh, Samuel's spirit and, Sa and Saul talked to him. Well, the Puritans didn't believe that it was um, Samuel's spirit. They thought that the devil, Satan, had come through uh, and, and taken the form of Samuel, and that Saul was actually talking to the devil who looked like Samuel in, in spirit form. So Susanna brought this up at the trial and said, look, uh, if they're being attacked by some spirit that looks like me, it could be Satan himself. And the, the, believe it or not, the judges dismissed that, just, you know, didn't believe it. Well, eventually people started realizing <laughs> that that really uh, could be the case. And so there were people who argued about including that kind of evidence. And that is really what eventually brought it all to a head. And my family's lore is that Susanna, after being executed, came to the governor of Massachusetts, Governor Phelps, and told him that if this madness continued, his wife was going to be next. And in Ooh. fact... She, his wife was accused after that, and that's when it all stopped. <laughs> Governor called a halt to it. Oh, so what that, a coincidence. How about that? Wow. Yeah. But there were others. There were Baptists, a Baptist minister who argued uh, against uh, including that kind of evidence, and uh, he really got a lot of trouble because of it. You know, they, people just wanted to believe. It was, something was going on in Massachusetts at that time with the problems with the Indians, and they thought the Indians were devil worshipers mm. and that Satan was all around. And, and their whole attitude was that life was a test. And uh, that even if you pass the test, you might go to hell because uh, I've forgotten where the verse comes from. But uh, uh, what is it? Many are called, but few are chosen. So they thought that in order to make it to heaven, you had to be chosen. And if you weren't chosen, you're were going to hell no matter how good you were. And uh, so you might as well join up with the devil and have a good time while you were, uh, you know, while you were around in, in physical form.
<laughs> well, there's, there's certainly a lot of rock songs that are written around that little phrase. <laughs> if you want to get to heaven, got to raise a little hell. That comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Was it always females that were targeted oh, as a witch? No, no, not actually. Most of them were, but uh, there were actually two men. One man w was hanged. Oh, boy. He had been a, a former uh, uh, pastor in Massachusetts. And when he was going to the uh, gallows, standing before the gallows, about to have the neck, you know, the rope put around his neck, he said the Lord's Prayer, which a witch or someone who was in league with the with Satan was not supposed to be able to do. And so that was one another thing to cast doubt on the whole thing. The other man who died as a result was never convicted of witchcraft, but he uh, was accused. And in order to try him, he had to enter a plea of either guilty or not guilty. And so he refused to enter a plea and what they did is they laid him down and they started piling rocks on his chest to get him to make, give a plea. And eventually uh, they kept piling rocks and uh, his famous last words were more weight. And they put another rock on it and it crushed his chest and he died. You know, that is just so much like, uh, I'm a parody writer, I'm a comic by, <laughs> by the side here. and. <laughs> It reminds me, I think it was on Saturday Night Live or, or Monty Python, where they're going to drown the witch. But if, if she sinks, she was innocent. But if she floats, we have to kill her. And I think that was a Monty Python sketch. Where it's like, but you know, that, that's true. Uh, it's called uh, dunking a witch or whatever. But anyway, yeah, they, their belief was that water was pure. You know, you were baptized in water. And so therefore, if you floated, you must be evil because the water wasn't accepting you. But if you sank, you, you were innocent, but you, you were a goner either way. <laughs> so it was absolutely insane. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And that's kind of the way I feel going through a regular work day, actually. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I love that your book just came out. I think people are going to really enjoy it. And I know that there's more to it than just the witch story. If anyone is in marketing and um, interested in kind of that path that you've taken as well, and that is your legacy is marketing. And then it kind of, you blended it in with this witch trial story. And I think that's pretty genius. Well, it's called the Witch of Amesbury, the uh, matriarch of an advertising dynasty. And come to, and come to my website. You can look at the books uh, pages on there's a page with books on it that i've written and it's right in there you can click on that it'll take you to amazon it's called the witch of amesbury yeah and you have marketing in your bloodline and witches in your bloodline um what did i read about you that it's like going through your your children are all involved in marketing as well they are my father was uh, an advertising Brother started an agency called the Martin Agency, which is pretty well known in, in the in the business. Uh, we had the the Geico account and some other things like that, you know, the Geico Gecko. And, yeah. Uh, and I I was his partner for a number of years, and I'm, I don't do it anymore. I'm kind of an old guy now, but uh, now I'm just writing books and publishing books. Anybody has a book to publish, come to my website, send me 
uh, an email through the contact form. It's shmartin.com, S-H-M-A-R-T-I-N.com. That's great. And then the other books you have on there happen to talk about near death. And why did you write about that? Well, um, I was brought up as a scientific materialist. Uh, my, I think I might have mentioned this already, that my parents didn't believe anything existed if you couldn't see it under a microscope. And that's what I thought and what I learned in school and science and so forth. And then when I was uh, probably about 25, I had a very brief but very uh, compelling near-death experience and found myself out of my body looking at what looked like roadkill down on the bed, which was me. And uh, it didn't last very long. I don't have a really dramatic story where, you know, I went to the light and all that stuff, but I was definitely out of my body and I definitely said, hey, I thought, you know, I'm down there, my brain's down there and I'm up here. And so I had a, 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 a kind of an epiphany. It isn't the brain that creates consciousness. You know, I'm separate from that. And so I I'd really started to be looking into it. And it's uh, something that's been a passion of mine over, over many years. And uh, I have written a book that's sold very well called uh, uh, Afterlife. Uh, I've got it actually in a couple of different books. But anyway, there's a series, uh, Life After Death, Powerful Evidence You Will Never Die. Life After Death, Powerful Evidence You Will Never Die. And <clears throat> I have investigated all this scientific uh, material that has been produced, pr produced by really very credible or, uh, organizations and people, one of them being the University of Virginia, which has a, uh, in their medical school, uh, division they call the Division of Pe Perceptual Studies. And they have been studying uh, children's memories of past lives since the early 1960s. They have over 2,500 documented cases <clears throat> that they've checked out where the child had certain information and they checked to see if it was true or not. And it was. Wow. And, and, and yet, uh, and yet, of course, people still hang on to this scientific materialist idea that came forth from uh, uh, back in the 19th century. And it's, it really doesn't hold water anymore. And that, read my books, you'll see why. There is much more to reality that meets mm -hmm. the eye, so to speak, pun intended. What's the event that happened when you were 25? Well, I uh, was, I had, had a really bad case of the flu. I was, it was, I was a bachelor living in an apartment in Baltimore, it's Bolton Hill area, which is an old area of Baltimore, that, uh, and on a Saturday night, you know, I, as a bachelor, I was, uh, you know, usually going out and having fun. But I was really pretty sick. And I had two other roommates. We had a large apartment on two floors, this old townhouse. And I was, <laughs> it's interesting, I, I remember I was reading uh, Kafka, uh, Metamorphosis. And uh, I heard some people come in downstairs and, you know, clinking of glasses and music going and I thought, oh my God, there's a party going on down, downstairs. And here I'm up in my bedroom and I feel awful, but yeah, I think I'll give it a try. So I, I uh, pulled, pulled on some clothes and I 
went downstairs and I had a couple of drinks. And of course, this was the uh, mid 70s. And, you know, there were people smoking things. And I, I partook in all that. Which herbs? See, it's the witch <laughs> genetics in your system. You couldn't, yeah, couldn't resist yeah. the devil weed. <laughs> yes, that's right. And I did. So I, but anyway. Um, and now it's sold legally, so that's fine. You're fine. Yes, yeah, so I had some scotch and I had some beer. Now it's legal. I mean, it's even legal in Virginia now, believe it Wow. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, I, I suddenly I realized that I was, I could barely stand up. And, and I kind of knee walked back up to my bed. I flopped down and suddenly I was like I was up on the ceiling and I was looking down at my body that looked like roadkill. And uh, then I, ha I did have another experience that uh, later on, but that's what got me started looking into this idea of body-mind, you know, what's, mm -hmm. what's the real relationship. Then <clears throat> about 10 years later, <clears throat> I was uh, married and had a child and uh, I uh, was kind of relaxing in the backyard of had a nice house, good job, wonderful wife, healthy child, you know, five or six years old. And <clears throat> I was just sort of meditating on this lounge chair. And suddenly I, I had this this mystical experience, I guess, is the only way to describe it, where I sort of merged with the, uh, with the infinite mind, you know, all the information of the universe was available to me. That's what it felt like anyway. And uh, so, I mean, I, I kind of go into that in one of my books and go on for several pages about it, but it was just a fantastic experience. But I came out of that knowing that uh, really, uh, th this this little reality we're part of, this physical reality, is just a tiny, tiny bit of what the whole picture, the whole story is. Life or death, powerful evidence you'll never die, is uh, is the first book you ought to read for me. But if there's a lot of evidence in there, I mean, really a lot of evidence that is comes from credible sources that we are not just our bodies. We are much more. We are spiritual beings who are having a temporary physical experience. That is the conclusion I've come to, and there's no doubt about it in my mind. And once you realize that, it really changes how you look at reality and how you live, because you know that you're going to exist forever. Forever is a long time. You know, eternity is uh, uh, forever. <laughs> are you a religious person? No. Well, I go to church with my wife. Uh, she is a very strong Christian. I believe that Jesus was uh, a enlightened being. He was like a, a, some of these Hindu yogi types who are, I mean, that he's, I believe that Jesus actually learned all that in India, that, that from the time he was there's nothing about Jesus in the Bible from the time he's 12 till he's like 31 and starts his ministry. And during that time, I think, and there's evidence, this is not something I write about, but something I've read about, there's evidence that he spent that time in India. And of course, the Hindus, I think, do have it right. But I do think that Jesus was a 
enlightened being, and that unfortunately a lot of his uh, teachings and so forth have kind of been, uh, I don't know what edited the word, edited, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say bastardized, but I shouldn't yeah, say well, that. there's that too. <laughs> by, uh, <laughs> by people who've come along who really don't know what they're talking about, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh, but I, if you just read what he said, I mean, I think he was right on. I, I think he was an enlightened person. Enlightened and you think being. he was uh, in his lounge chair in the backyard doing the meditation too? Yeah, only he did it in an ashram somewhere in India. And yeah. they really knew what they were doing there. So that's fabulous. Uh, yeah. So, but I, you know, you I enjoy going to church and mm -hmm. I wish my wife likes one that I think, you know, the people are pretty enlightened. You know, I don't have a problem with much of what they say. So, yeah, uh, and, and I don't talk about it a whole lot with my wife because she'll get upset. I hope she doesn't uh, watch or listen to this podcast. But You know what's I cool, Stephen, is your open mind because you, you describe yourself as an, as an old man. Okay, but you're not. You're older, but it's still <clears> to say you're, you're so open-minded, I feel like, I f that's why I felt comfortable asking if you were religious because I could I could hear you dabbling in it but you're also saying but to each his own and I think you're like me I can go to church and there's still some sort of message yeah. you know, if, if, exactly and, I, and you know there if, if people are in different places in their spiritual journey and you know some are locked into uh, scientific materialism they don't think anything exists outside of uh, physical reality and when you die you're dead Mm -hmm. I think they're going to be in for a rude awakening. And I think there are a lot of spirits around like the ones in Massachusetts in 1692 who are causing problems because they don't need, realize they're supposed to go to the light after they die. They don't even think it's there. But, uh, my uh, luck, I'd be dying and it would be go to the light and I'd be having a migraine and I can't be in the light. I'm going to screw this up. I'm going to have to keep notes on my wrist. But, I want uh, to ask... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go no no stuff. So. I wanted Go to ahead. ask you if you have a, a I just love to ask my guests if you have a dare or a prank story or something like that that you'd want to share with everybody. Well, you know, um I yeah, I uh as we've been saying, you know, I kind of came from being a scientific materialist, thinking that only physical reality was real. And I had this experience in my mid-20s. A few years later, I was, and I was searching, but I still didn't, you know, I hadn't gotten it together. I hadn't figured it out yet. When uh, uh, my first wife and I, my first wife was French and we had a child and we would spend several weeks every summer in France and we would visit her friends there. And one summer we went to Corsica, which is French island, believe it or not. Uh, they speak their own language there, but they also speak French. And <clears throat> her friend there, where we, we were staying in an apartment summer house of one of her friends, who was very kind of uh, into all this hocus pocus stuff, and she liked to read tarot cards. And she talked me into uh, <clears throat> taking a couple of cards out of the deck just the night before we were to leave. And she was going to tell me, a little bit of my what was going to happen to me coming up so she looked at these two cards and she said you're going to meet a, a blonde young man who is going to need your help and you can either 
help him or not help him. It's up to you, but that's going to happen. And I said, oh, okay. Oh, she said, we're, and you're going on a trip. And I said, well, yeah, we're going on a trip tomorrow. We're leaving. So <laughs> and we're going to Marseille. You're like, oh, so, you saw my airline ticket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we took a flight from uh, Calvi to Marseille. <clears throat> and when we got to the airport, I realized we need to take a taxi. We're going to go visit another one of my wife's friends who lived in Marseille. And I didn't have a whole lot of cash. So I, I went at that time, this was before the Euro. This is where they still had francs, French francs. So I got in line. All the airports over there used to have uh, little banks where you could change whatever currency, you know, your German money or your French money, your uh, English money or your American money into francs. Mm -hmm. So I stood in line and right in ahead of me, in this line, <coughs> a blonde young man. She said, blonde young man. I don't know if I mentioned that before, but mm -hmm. she said, you're going to meet a blonde young man and he's going to need help. So he got up to the cashier and he unfolded this bill that was about as big as a, as a piece of, uh, you know, typing paper, unfolded this thing. And he, and he hands it to the uh, cashier who looks at the thing and his eyes get big and he says, ooh la la. <laughs> uh, and he starts jabbering in French about it and hands the bill back to the guy. Well, the guy was bewildered, you know, what's wrong? And the guy in the, in the uh, cashier speaking in rapid French and he, he, he turned to me, he was, turns out he was Norwegian, but he spoke English. All those uh, Scandinavian people speak English. And he said, I don't know what to do. This is all the money I've got. I mean, I put it all in this one bill and, and, and what's he saying? And so I kind of leaned over and listened to what the uh, cashier was saying. He says, that bill is too big. I have, do not have the authority to change that much money. You'll have to take it downtown to the bank downtown and change it there. So I turned around to the uh, Norwegian guy and explained what he, the cashier had said. And the poor guy said, oh my gosh, well, I'll have to take a cab down there and the cab will have to wait, you know, because I don't have any French money. So anyway, I helped this blonde young man. Next thing, we go to um, my wife's friend's house, Joelle's house, in uh, a nice section of Marseille. Marseille is not a very great town, but anyway, they do have a nice area where it's on kind of the side of a mountain, overlooks the, uh, the harbor there where the Count of Monte Crisco, you know, was interned and so forth. And at Joelle's house, Joelle had a boyfriend, fiance, who had become a good friend of ours, of mine. We had been to France a number of times, and when we got married, he was uh, my French equivalent of a best man. They don't call it that there. And, but he had died recently. The rumor was that he had committed suicide because he and Joël, Philippe was his name, Philippe and Joël had had a falling out. Also, Philippe had been uh, the commandant, kind of the head guy on the Calypso, which is Jacques Cousteau's boat. I don't know, probably people don't remember that because it was oh, yeah. a uh, TV show on PBS back in the 70s. But <clears throat> anyway, Philippe had said that he kind of had a fascination with death. I mean, he, he drove, I was once on the back of a motorcycle 
that he was driving going 120 miles an hour down Laura Street in Marseille. I mean, it was like crazy. I was never did a scientific materialist ever hold on for dear life like I did when that was going on. But, and he flew <laughs> airplanes, you know, and things like that, dove out of them. But uh, <laughs> anyhow, he had a fascination with death and said that, you know, once he died, if he was able to, he would come back and communicate with his friends just to let them know what it was like over there. So when we got to Joel's house, Joel and my wife started chatting, you know, and they're talking. We had dinner. And by the way, I think I forgot to mention our three-year-old daughter was with us. Mm, her, name, okay. her name was Sophie. And so Sophie's playing in the other room. We're having dinner. And they're jabbering in French. And <clears throat> Philippe had had an apartment in the English-type basement of this house in Marseille, where we usually stayed if he wasn't there because, and he wasn't there because he was dead. So uh, they're jabbering in French and I'm saying to myself, you know, I want to get the hell out of here because I, you know, I'm getting a headache from trying to, from, I'm not that good. I mean, good enough to know what a cashier is saying about money, but not enough to get into a deep conversation. And they didn't, they didn't want you to either. I'm, <laughs> I'm, as really, a woman, you know, I'm just going to tell you. They were catching up, you know, uh -huh. were, and she, <laughs> Joelle was pouring out all this stuff about Philippe and how they, you know, and she, he was dead and he had, when during his funeral, her watch had stopped during the funeral and started back up again afterwards, and, you know, and black cats and bumps in the night, you know, she thought he was trying to communicate with her. Okay. So <clears throat> I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to go to bed now and uh, I'm going to take Sophie and we'll go down. So we go down into this English basement, down this spiral staircase into this thing. And Sophie's with me. And when we get there, it's this, this is Philippe's apartment. And the stuff from all, the, all over the world that he's collected, you know, is hanging on the walls, you know, these voodoo dolls and, the, and these uh, pictures. And, and I'm feeling his presence. It's like he's right up to my face, you know, kind of breathing on me, Philippe. Because, wow. you know, I knew him well. He's my best man. Right. And, but I didn't, I couldn't. We didn't want to say anything or act strange because, you know, my three-year-old daughter's with me. So, you know, I read her a bedtime story. There's a crib set up. Joelle probably set it up at the base of the bed there where we, my wife and I were going to sleep. So I put Sophie down in the bed and I turn all the lights out except for one little light next to the uh, bed. And I'm reading, I was trying to read a book and I can't concentrate because I feel like Philippe is there and I'm looking around at him and, and I'm looking at this wall and I look at this, this, I think it must have been an American Indian kind of uh, tapestry thing. It looks like a, a burst, kind of like the, the Japanese flag. And I'm looking at that and suddenly I hear this voice that says, don't think about ghosts. It doesn't do any good to think about ghosts. And I'm telling you that the hair was standing up on the back of my neck. Oh, my gosh. And I realized it was my daughter was sitting up in the crib and that she had said that. What? Three-year-old daughter. And, I'm, and I said, yeah, I said something like, um, you're right, Sophie. It's not good to think about ghosts. And I'm thinking she, she's like, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's. I, she either she picked up on what I was thinking about <laughs> Philippe and the ghost. Maybe she knew that we were in the bedroom 
of a guy who had just maybe committed suicide. And, but I, we hadn't talked about that with her. Well, and she I don't think three-year-olds say ghosts. I don't think they're that yeah. well versed in that at that they, point. We'd never talked about ghosts. No. And so the conclusion I came to, Lisa, is that it was Philippe communicating through her mm-hmm. to me, telling me, mm-hmm. don't, you know, live life. Yeah. Don't think about it. It's, right. you know, you might as well, you're only here for a while. Go ahead and, you know, enjoy it. Or, you know, that's kind of the message I eventually got out of that. So that's my ghost story. I love it. And it's, it, um, I actually got chills when you said it, that it came out of Sophie because children don't have all the jumbledygook in their heads that we do. And that, that's what makes them a better vessel for messages or things well, like that. Well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, and they're much, I think the children, and in fact, one one of the things that I talk about in my book, uh, Life After Death, Powerful Evidence You Never Die, is the research the University of Virginia has been doing with children who remember their past lives. They're much closer to it. Usually by the time they're six or seven, they've grown out of it. But they're still kind of partway on the other side until uh, until they're a little bit older. So, yeah, I think that's what happened. Oh, there's there so go. much. I love it. This has just been a joy. And I definitely will reach out to you um again because of publishing and writing in general and you're just adorable in your flannel shirt (laughs) and i just am so happy that we met so i really appreciate you being on my episode and i will share this with you and i am honored to have chatted with you stephen holly martin and Mm -hmm. remember that we can only be strangers once and you should stay weird i will try to do my best in that way Thank you. Thanks. This has been Stranger Connections with Lisa David Olson. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 